Good morning, Mill City. For anybody who is maybe brand new with us, uh, for sake of introduction, my name is Aaron Stern. I'm the lead pastor here and want to welcome everybody joining us online. We're so happy that you're with us as well. And before we jump into the message, I do have one um, PSA, and that is uh, Easter is several weeks away, about six weeks away right now. Uh, It is March 31st, kind of moving forward this year. And the reason I'm highlighting that is, one, if you're a planner, uh, you might be happy to know that we have RSVPs available on our website. And this year, because of some scheduling conflicts, if this isn't another reason for needing a, our own building, um, but we are not able to meet here. And so we will be meeting at the Lincoln Center uh, on Easter, which is going to be uh, pretty, pretty awesome. So uh, you can still RSVP for all of that. You can start making plans and uh, it's going to be a fabulous day. I also want you to be thinking and praying about who it is that maybe you would invite uh, to come with you. Uh, it's going to be an amazing day, an amazing day of celebration of our resurrected King. So how about that for an advertisement? Do you know that the average American, speaking of advertisements, um, sees 500,000 commercials by the time they're a senior in high school? Half a million. In 2016, the average time per day in front of a screen, a screen was 2.6 hours. In 2023, that number has tripled to 7.4 hours a day. The average iPhone user touches or swipes their phone 2,617 times a day. The average Android user, I have no idea, it's less sexy to touch it, you know, I don't know. We are in the digital age. And if you're a parent in the room of littles or teenagers or anywhere in between, you understand the challenge. Oh, the challenge. I have two high schoolers right now, and it's texting and TikTok and Instagram and YouTube and Fortnite and fill in the blank. Can, you know, and if, and it, it's, it is a challenge. Can you feel my pain? And then there's AI. ChatGPT wrote this sermon today, so that's, you know, that's good. <laughs> just kidding, just in case you're worried. Now, technology is so helpful. I'm really grateful. I don't miss paper maps. I don't miss blockbuster video. Some of you are like, what is blockbuster video? (laughs) Back in the olden days, you used to have to go to a store if you wanted to watch a movie. You have to go get in your car, go to a store, see what movies they have. They might not have the one you want, and pick it out, pay for it, rent it, bring it to your house, watch it within a certain amount of time, and bring it back. It's kind of, and, and, and otherwise you get a late fee or, you know, all that kind of stuff. For all you sentimental people, uh, I'm glad you miss it, but I don't. And I don't, miss, I don't miss phones attached to poles that you used to have to put money into to utilize. I don't miss any of that. But it is important in the midst of advances in technology to not embrace it mindlessly. Because it does have impact. Digitalization has contributed to an increase in, increase in several things. I just want to highlight three. Number one, it has increased anxiety and depression. The sociologist Gene Twenge reported it, that in 2012, 
there was a major spike in depression amongst 12 to 17-year-olds, saying they felt persistent hopelessness, loneliness, they didn't see any good coming in the future, anxious, don't enjoy my life. The sharp increase specifically in 2012, she attributed to the fact that the majority of teenagers were on social media. It's not the only factor, but it is a contributing factor. Digitalization has also contributed to the increase in distraction. Technology has not made us smarter. Actually, the average IQ has gone down 14 points. We're not getting smarter, we're getting less focused. We're not getting better at multitasking, we're actually getting better at being distracted and unable to focus and think deeply. The average attention span or the willingness and ability to like focus and do something and wait for a website or something like that to load is eight seconds. So we're in a state of continual, this is a Microsoft executive's phrase, continual partial attention. Oh, look at the rabbit. Kidding. That was funny. I don't care what you said. <laughs> Former... Former Google employees said that everything that Google was developing was engineered for distraction and addiction. Ronald Rollheiser wrote in his book, he's a Catholic theologian, The Holy Longing, this new epidemic of distraction is our civilization's specific weakness. The effect is on our souls. We are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. Our inability to focus is having impact on our time with God, the ability to focus in prayer or sit in silence. Digitalization has also contributed to the increase in tribalism. Anybody seen the documentary, The Social Dilemma? Some of you. Uh, Jossie and I watched it with our boys, found it to be so fascinating, and essentially it talks about the algorithms that are utilized to create echo chambers, reinforce and even intensify ideas, uniting people by fears and hate. In other words, if you're against this, these are the people that are creating that. And so they are villainized by getting labeled and so it's the liberals, or the conservatives, or the Trumpers, or the never-Trumpers, or the Marxists, or they are the fascists, and we must destroy them because they are destroying our world. We talked about tribalism a few weeks ago and the ways in which it centers not around a common love, but around a common hate. It's an anti-community community. What these things mean and so many other impacts of technology is that digitalization is forming us. We are being formed. Formation is not neutral. If we're not being formed into the likeness of Jesus, we are being formed into something by someone or something else. 1 Peter chapter 2, this is where the series titled Peculiar People comes from. In verse 9, it says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession or unique possession. In one particular translation, it says, you are a peculiar people. 
that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Continues on in that chapter by describing the people of God as exiles or foreigners. The idea that you oftentimes might be an outsider. You might be weird by what you do. Now, this isn't about being weird for weird's sake. You know, like, well, I'm, I'm just a Christian, so I'm weird. That I don't think is helpful. There are just enough things that we should do as followers of Jesus that make us weird on our own. Now, I knew I was weird growing up. I grew up in a house where my mom did not believe in sugar. So everything was made with honey. And so, uh, you know, I'd offer a cookie to my friends and they would not like it. <laughs> uh, we did not have chocolate in our house. We had carob. <laughs> a couple of people, yeah, you can feel my pain. <laughs> carob chip cookies do not taste like chocolate chip cookies, everybody. Uh, we drank kefir in our house. Any? Okay, thank you. You know, we're together. You know, you're like... Now, I know like some of the health craze has made a, a, a resurgence, but back in this day, it was not cool. And we, I also grew up in a house without a TV in our house until I was 15 years old. People came to our... I'm actually really grateful for it now, but people came to our... My friends came to our house and were like, where's the TV? And I'm like, oh, you know, in the shop, I, you know. <laughs> Strange. I'd like open my lunch in school and not let anybody see what was in there, you know. My friends have Snicker bars and me and my carob trip chips over here, you know. Marva Dawn, theologian, she taught at Regent University, said uh, in Vancouver, sociologists know that any group that seeks to be different from the dominant culture must have rights. Rituals, customs, language, habits, memories, and manners that help members know they are different and why that matters. Now, I'm not going to spend the rest of our time talking about how to manage screens, though that is important. I've talked about it before. I would recommend that you go and, and watch or listen to one of those messages. But though it's important to manage all of that for yourself or for your family, it is only half the battle. Dr. Kevin Van Hooser said in his book, Hearers and Doers, the process of making disciples or being apprenticed to Jesus involves both deprogramming, exposing, critiquing, and correcting the pictures and stories we live by, and reprogramming, replacing the old self and the social imaginaries that funded our former way of life with the social imaginary generated by Scripture and the gospel. And so what we want to talk about today, where we're going, is that we are to be a community of physical presence in a culture of digitalization. So I want to take some time and set a vision for physical presence, which means we're going to we're going to talk a little theology here and give you a, a theology of the physical, or as a subcategory of the physical is the theology of the body. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, the tragedy of life is that we so often, is that so often we allow the means by which we live to outdistance the ends for which we live. 
we have allowed our technology to outdistance our theology. And for this reason, we find ourselves caught up with many problems. So what I want to do is close the gap between our theology and our technology here, if I can. Now, if we look at the first century and look at a history of this theology of the physical, the ancient view held by Plato was that the physical doesn't matter and the spiritual is the most important. And so it's a, it's a pushing down and a dismissing of the physical. Different people took it in different directions from there. The Stoics basically said, ignore the body, beat it into submission. The other side was the Epicureans, and the Epicure- Epicureans said, indulge the body. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We carry that forward into our current prevailing view, in many ways a a relative of that particular perspective, driven by the Enlightenment from a few hundred years ago, which mantra is, I think, therefore I am, which, which gives basically the impression and the idea that we are brains with legs, that our body is just useful for carrying around our brain and what we think and feel. As a result, then, our body just becomes an organism. Nancy Piercy, in her amazing book, Love Thy Body, describes this as a two-story divide, basically the brain and the feelings on the second floor, on the upper floor, the most important place, and the body and the physical underneath it, which means that your brain and your feelings take precedent over the physical and your biology. Which means then that that leads into our current day that says, I can do whatever I want with my body. I'll indulge it however I want. I'll do anything I want with it. I'll, I, in relationship to sexuality or gender or addiction or substances, I do whatever brings the most physical pleasure to me. Now, I grew up in a Christian home, and I regularly heard, and I think this is a prevailing thought among American Christians, I am a spirit, I have a soul, and I live in a body. Maybe you've heard that before, but in many ways that actually still continues to devalue the physical. Because the physical is then thought of as a utilitarian way. Maybe it's not just carrying around a brain, but it's just carrying around a soul and a spirit. The more historic and actually more biblical view is what might be called sacramental theology, where the visible reveals the invisible, that there isn't two tiers, it's all together. They both matter. The physical matters. This is why we might, when we take communion, we, take, we eat bread and drink wine or juice. It is a physical reminder of a spiritual reality. We are water baptized, baptized in water as a symbol or a representation of something. Uh, oil is oftentimes thought of or utilized as an anointing of the Holy Spirit. Physical revealing and connecting to the spiritual. Which if you work your way through the scripture and unpack the, this idea... It means that Christians don't have a low view of the body. They actually have a very high view of the body. God doesn't diminish the physical. He dignifies it. 
And I want to highlight three different ways that's communicated throughout the scripture. Number one, God dignifies the physical as indicated by creation. In the very beginning, God creates this world, and he says in Genesis chapter 1, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Don't you just love that? I think God's saying, like, take care of my creation. Take care of the earth. Christians should be the loudest advocates for the environment. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. It was very good. This, this statement of very good is a blessing. In other words, he sees it. He says, this is so good. And he blesses what he has made. In creation, God blesses his world. He blesses the physical. Now, of course, a couple of chapters in and sin and death has been invited into the world. And, but God loved his world so much that he initiates a rescue plan. He's like, no, 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 I love this creation. I love this world. I love what I've made here. And so he initiates a rescue plan culminating in Jesus. And Jesus shows up in human form. God dignifies the physical as indicated by incarnation. In John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. This Word references to Jesus. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth in the flesh. God honors the physical by sending his son into the world as a human being to show us what it looks like to be fully human. Not to somehow float away, not to somehow distance yourself from the reality of creation and from the reality of humanity, but instead to say, no, 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 I'm going to come right into it because incarnation is about God working within his world. Creation is God blessing his physical world. Jesus coming is God working within his physical world. Eugene Peterson, pastor and author, wrote this, spirituality requires context, always boundaries, borders, limits. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. No one becomes more spiritual by becoming less material. No one becomes exalted by sending in a gloriously colored hot air balloon. And then finally, God dignifies the physical as indicated by resurrection. Jesus goes to the cross, and he comes out again in human form. 
flesh. His disciples actually came to him and said, when they, when he, when they, when he, after he'd risen from the dead, and they're like, can you eat some fish? Can you eat? Why? Because they wanted to see, can you actually digest real things? Like, are you a real human, flesh and blood? It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when the Corinthian church was asking Paul about resurrection bodies, he says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This word first fruits is an agricultural term, which means first of more to come. Jesus' resurrection body, his redeemed physical body, with marks from the reality of the world, still carried in this resurrection body, is the first of more to come. Because God will redeem our physical bodies. N.T. Wright says it this way, what God did for Jesus on Easter, he will one day do for the whole world. Not just for our physical bodies, but for all of his physical creation, which he created, said is good, blessed it, worked within it, showed what it looked like to be human, died so that it would be rescued, and death would be defeated so that creation, physical bodies would be restored. Romans chapter 8 says we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Why groaning? Because things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship and what? Our redempt, the redemption of our bodies. See, resurrection is about God redeeming His world, redeeming the physical, and it's not just a redemption of our souls. It's not just a redemption of our physical bodies. It's a redemption of all of his physical creation. Indicated in Revelation chapter 21, where John the Revelator says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Chaos and evil and death were gone, but the creation had been restored as it was supposed to to be the end when Jesus returns and all things are made new. The end is not about an elimination of or an escape from the physical, but about redemption of it. Redeeming, restoring, renewing what God created in the first place. So we need to come to a place where we realize how much the physical matters which will then inform the way in which we interact with the digitalized world. And so we want to live this out in practical ways. So every week we have a weekly practice. Our weekly practice this week is to evaluate your screen time. Like not just your phone screen time, but every screen time, like TV, movies, what? And, and for many of you, you have to be in front of a screen for work. And I realize that we're talking about the screens outside of what is required. And to determine times to turn off the screens and to be fully present. It might be that you put your phone to bed, meaning you put it in another room before you actually go to bed so that your phone is not the last thing that you see and not the first thing that you see in the morning. Or maybe, maybe it's putting it away for the evening. Maybe it's turning off the TV during dinner or it, the way that it's background noise. 
I was talking with a couple not too long ago, and we were, as we were talking about this idea, um, they said we, we, they, they kind of watched a show before they would go to, go to sleep. They said we, we put our phones to bed in another room, and we stopped watching a show. You know what we did? We talked and we prayed. Now, could they do that at another time? Yes. But they said they didn't. But it just created some extra space. Maybe you go to city group, maybe city group leaders, maybe you have a, a phone basket and everybody puts their phone in the basket. Did you know that, that when you sit at a table and eat, if somebody's phone is on the table, even if it's face down, there's something subconscious in each one of us that somehow isn't as vulnerable or doesn't communicate as deeply because we're aware that we might be interrupted and likely if that interruption happens, the phone rings, the phone buzzes, whatever, that somebody's going to look at it which communicates what you're saying is not so valuable and there might be something that's worth interrupting that for. What does it look like to maybe not have your phone at the dinner table? What does it look like for you not to have your phone at the lunch table? What does it look like to somehow be fully present to your, to your roommates, to your spouse, to your kids, to sit there and be with them? Maybe you're online, and we're so glad that you're with, with us. There's something valuable and so such a blessing for maybe if you're traveling, if you're sick or unable somehow to make it. But I, I wonder if we sometimes can get into a habit of like, well, online is good, and it is a blessing, but I got to say it's not the same. Like what if somehow we're like, you know what, there's something important about being in the same physical space with someone else. I wonder if we were to ask ourselves a question. I, I know that as I've tried to manage and push screens aside, I, I regularly still find myself picking it up to look. I've turned off notifications and rings and dings and buzzes, and I still pick it up to see. Did I get a text? It's, it's a habit. A, an addiction maybe even. Why do we do that? Maybe we could say it's, it's, it's a habit, but, but maybe we could go a little deeper and ask, what am I maybe avoiding? Is there, is there something I'm being distracted from that I actually want to distract myself from some pain or some, some issues that I need to deal with that if I really just am present will actually start to rise to the surface? I realize also that as we're talking about a theology of the physical and more specifically a theology of the body, that this could be a, a trigger for some of you because, because maybe, in this, maybe you have a complicated relationship with your body. Maybe you have cursed your body. Maybe you've done things with your body that you're, you're not proud of. Maybe somebody has done something to your body Maybe there's a way that as you think about or see yourself and it relates to shame, body image issues or eating issues. You've been mocked maybe by others or made fun of because of particular attributes or unique ways that God made you. Or maybe 
like Catherine Wolf. She was here several years ago. Maybe some of you remember her. She's a stroke. She had experienced a stroke. She's now an author. And, but she says, I feel let down by my body. I wonder if you find yourself in this room let down by your body. Maybe because of a disability, a chronic, chronic pain or a disease. Maybe, maybe it's because you've been trying to have kids and, and your body is miscarrying. You find yourself related to pain when you think about the dynamics of the physical. I wonder if you could just take a moment and think of the ways you feel let down by your body. I remember several years ago when my retina detached from my left eye and I couldn't see. I felt so let down. I know so many different stories of people in this room that have experienced pain and loss and feel let down. We live in a world that where there's sin and death has been let in. And so our bodies are broken, but they are still blessed. God didn't say because of the invitation of sin and death into the world that he no longer calls what he has made good. He actually still calls it good. And because he loves it so much and loves you and me so much, he wants to restore it and redeem it. The willingness and the, that he sent his son to the cross was for that reason. God calls the physical and he calls your body good. He blesses you. To bless is to call what is good, good. You are not an accident. You were knit together in your mother's womb on purpose. The uniquenesses of who you are was not an accident. God blesses you and calls your body good. Calls it good. He blesses you, who you are. Not just the idea of you, not just the, the soul part of you, the spirit part of you, the physical part of you. I think this is really important for this to settle in. And so I want us to, we're going to take a moment and Callie's going to come out and sing a song. Some of you might want to sing along. Some of you might want to just listen and allow this to settle and, and wash over you. A song called The Blessing. And it's a reminder about the realization that God blesses you. Earlier we sang the song, God, we bless you. And yes, that is so true and so good. We bless God, but God blesses you. So if you would, you're welcome to stand. You're welcome to sit. You're welcome to kneel if you're able. You're welcome to do whatever in response to the song. You're welcome to sing. You're welcome to not. But we just allow the reality of God's blessing over you and your physical body to be a reality. Maybe even open your hands like this as a way of receiving that reality. Let's sing this, lean into this together.
wonder if you find yourself in this moment trying and wanting, needing to receive, struggling. I wonder if you'd be bold enough to raise your hand if you're like, yeah, that's me. I have a complicated relationship with my body. I feel like my body's let me down or I somehow feel like it relates to shame or looking down on myself, what God's made. If that's you, would you be just willing to raise your hand? Several hands around the room. I want to take a moment and pray for everybody in here, but if you would, keep your hands up. And if nobody needs to move around, but if maybe you see somebody next to you or in front of you, would you just mind just, just touching their shoulder lightly? And Holy Spirit of God, we thank you that which you have made you made on purpose. What you have made, you bless. So I pray that each person in this room, especially those with their hand up, hands up, or even those who are online, would not just hear my words, but hear words from you. God says, I bless you. I call good what I made good. I bless you. He made you in your mother's womb. He blesses you. And even in the midst of the brokenness of the world, what he made is good. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you'd help each of us receive that reality. Receive the blessing. Live into the reality that, that you made us, that our bodies are good, that it's not somehow something to be dismissed, but something to live into, our relationship with you. You want us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength with our bodies. We offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. So help us to receive a blessing in our bodies so that we can live out the reality of you in our bodies and blessing our bodies and working through our bodies and ultimately going to redeem our bodies. Ask for our touch from the Holy Spirit. Places of pain, places of shame. We ask for healing in bodies that are broken. We so often might feel let down. Pray that we'd embrace our limits, embrace the reality of what our bodies can and can't do, but maybe they used to be able to do. And we would know that your face shines on us and takes delight in us and in our bodies. This we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen. Before we close and lean into some final announcements, I just want to provide an opportunity for anybody who's here who might say, I, I've never said yes to Jesus before. Maybe, maybe you've first time in church or first time in a long time. And you're like, I, I want redemption. See, what happens is when we say yes to Jesus, we, we get this foreshadowing that like, 
are, we go from dead to alive on the inside. We're spiritually dead without Jesus. But when we surrender to him, we become spiritually alive, which is a foreshadowing of all that is dead coming alive, of resurrection power and all things being made new and made right. And so whether you're for the first time or the first time in a long time, would you respond to the invitation to cross the line of faith? And you can simply do that by praying sincerely under your breath. Jesus, I give you my life. Which means we give him everything. Our, our minds, our will, our emotions, our bodies. And you step into the family of God and into transformation and into the kingdom of redemption. Maybe you prayed that for the first time or the first time in a long time. Either way, heaven rejoices when one comes home. So if that's you here today, can we just together join with heaven and celebrate all those who just said yes to Jesus. As we close, let's all stand together.